1: This episode of The Constant is brought to you by the Whatever Happened To series for the young and easily influenced. Have you ever wondered what happened to healthcare? Or Mexican food? Or nipples? No, you haven't. Not yet. But in the dark times to come, you just might. That's where Whatever Happened To series for the young and easily influenced comes in. Each book in the series is a sweet, cynical, faux-children's book exploration of the problems faced by a dystopian future that could very well be ours. This is weird and devious and brutally hilarious satire. And the really brilliant kicker is that part of the proceeds from every sale go to a champion cause, including the likes of the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the Violence Policy Center, and Equality Now in an effort to keep the bleak and surreal prophecies included in their pages from ever coming to pass. Every three to four months, a new book is released, and they're available in both paperback or ebook form, purchasable either one by one or with a regular subscription. And if you go to WhateverHappenedSeries.com constant, you can get a $25 e-subscription right now, with $2 of each book going to the Champion cause. That's $22 given away to great causes and three measly bucks for the 11 ebooks. So go now to www.whateverhappenseries.com slash constant to get your deal today. Again, that's www.whateverhappenseries.com slash constant. The future will thank you while it still can. Father Johann Josef Gassner fell ill in 1758. The exact nature and symptoms of his illness are hazy, but they left him nearly infirmed and unable to properly attend to his priestly duties in claustral Austria. He sought treatment from local doctors, but nothing helped. Finally, Gasner struck upon an idea—to exercise himself. In the 18th century, Exorcism was still common in the Catholic Church, but demonic possession was characterized by exceptional supernatural symptoms, speaking in tongues, clairvoyance, the evil eye. Gasner, though, was coming to feel that demons were responsible for more mediocre ailments. Gasner's self-exorcism worked, and with his health restored, he began practicing his exorcism remedy on anyone who came his way. Rheumatism? Have an exorcism. Headaches? Exorcism. Allergies? Nothing a little exorcism can't fix. Pretty nearly any malady that didn't stem from obvious injury, Gassner thought was caused by demons, which he could probably remove. His procedure deviated from the approved Catholic rites. It involved a lot of showmanship, speechifying, yelling, touching affected areas, deep eye contact, pushing and striking. It brought a lot of attention Gassner's way. Thousands upon thousands of people flocked to him, to get their own medical exorcisms. These teeming throngs attracted other kinds of attention— academics, bishops, and governors who were skeptical or alarmed by his treatments, beliefs, and followings, respectively. Johann Salomo Selmer, the father of German rationalism, inspected his operation. So did the local ecclesiastical authorities. The University of Ingolstadt appointed a commission to look into him, and so did the imperial German government. But all of these attempts to kneecap Johann Joseph Gassner's work were hampered by the same problem. They all concluded it worked. Gassner had hundreds of written statements and eyewitness testimonials vouching for him and his technique. But something had to be up. The scientists and philosophers of the 1770s didn't believe in demons or possession. They were living through the Enlightenment. Supernatural beliefs were being defeated left and right. Mankind had recently demystified lightning, proving it was electricity. They'd figured out that oxygen was to blame for combustion rather than the semi-magical substance phlogiston. There was no way that this age of reason could accept curses and homunculi. So in 1775 the Munich Academy of Sciences brought in a Viennese doctor to finally discredit Gasner once and for all. The doctor had been getting similarly spectacular results as Gasner at his practice with a technique much like the priest's but with no demons required. When he took the lectern Franz Mesmer didn't question Gasner's sincerity as many of his critics did or his results he said, in effect, that Gasner had accidentally lucked upon the same rational, empirical, scientific treatment that he had. Although, obviously, Gasner's version was inferior to his own. It wasn't spirits the father was manipulating, Mesmer said, but a newly discovered biological force of nature. Animal magnetism. This is the constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Mesmerizing. If you believe psychiatrist and historian Henri Ellenberger, it was Mesmer's testimony that finally broke through the dross and discredited Gasner's expulsive exorcism theory. There's a lot of reason to doubt that, though. Judging just by the timeline and recorded events, it seems more likely that it was the Pope who was wary of Gasner's growing power base and cash that undid Gasner, banishing him as a pariah in the middle of nowhere and forbidding he practice exorcisms there. In other words, it wasn't Mesmer who destroyed Gasner's work. It was his own ambition. Still, Mesmer's theory gave the academic and scientific circles a way around conceding the existence of magical devils. In a possible world only slightly adjacent to this one, Franz Mesmer might have been in Gasner's shoes. He was born in 1734 to a forest warden and the daughter of a lockpick. The only reason he was afforded an education at all, let alone one that included the learning of Latin, was so he could eventually join the priesthood. But Mesmer was imbued with something that prevented a quiet, cloistered life in the clergy. And let's go ahead and call that thing ambition, too. Between 16 and 31, Mesmer spent his life in study. He began in theology, metaphysics, Latin, then mathematics, philosophy, French, When he reached the University of Vienna in 1759, he was 25 and intent on learning law. In a year, his ambition took him for another turn, and he shifted focus to medicine. In 1766, at 32 years of age, Franz Mesmer gave his thesis. It argued for an astronomical influence on human health that the movements of the moon, sun, and planets could cause a mysterious hypothetical fluid that animates all life to ebb and flow, causing or curing various ailments in the body. Paracelsus, the father of medicine, had believed in a vital fluid that animated life, and Isaac Newton had done pretty much the same, conjecturing that there was a fluid spirit in all living things. To Mesmer, it seemed only natural that Newton's spirit should be influenced by Newton's gravitational tides. He passed his doctoral exam with honors and began establishing a medical practice there in Vienna. At the same time, he also began establishing his social status. In 1768, he married Anna Maria von Posch. Posh was 10 years his senior, and he confessed to friends that he thought she was boring and stupid. Yet, there was a part of Franz that found Anna Maria irresistible. His ambition. Posch was rich and well-connected in Vienna's high society. Through her, Mesmer managed to ingratiate himself with the creme de la creme, including Emperor Joseph II, who you may remember from the story of the greatest military blunder of all times, Turks-Turks, back in our third season. More important to Mesmer than royalty, though, was art. Particularly music. Music. He used his newfound social status to buddy up with all of Vienna's best composers, a list which at the time included Haydn Salieri and Wolfgang Amadeus Jones. Sorry, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It's just the number of ridiculously famous people that cross Mesmer's orbit is so galling that I'm jealous, I guess. Which, you know, probably I shouldn't be given how the story ends, but what can I say? The next major figure to pop into Mesmer's world is a name that, while well-known, isn't famous for its bearer, Maximilian Hell. Hell, and that really is just about the worst surname you could come up with, was a Jesuit and astronomer who was appointed head of the Vienna Observatory in 1756, where he did some pretty fine work drawing up astronomical papers and charting the transit of Venus from northern Norway. There's a crater named for him on the moon. And while we could stand around all day questioning the wisdom of naming a cold, barren chunk of blasted-out rock Hell, it was certainly a kind sentiment. But it wasn't his astronomical work that caught Mesmer's attention. In 1771, Hell was appointed to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, and somewhere soon after that, Mesmer became aware of his other hobby, magnets. I can't tell for sure whether they knew one another or if Mesmer just heard about or witnessed his work, but Hell had developed a form of therapy by which he thought he could cure patients by working magnets about their bodies. This jived all too well with Mesmer's ideas. Hell doesn't seem to have postulated a whither to or wherefore on the method of action of his therapy, but Mesmer knew what it was. It was his very own theory of tidal life fluids being manipulated. So he decided to give it a try with one of his patients. Francisca Osterlin came to Mesmer in 1774, complaining of hysteria, also known as mother's disease, a condition caused by being a woman. Boy, we're going to have to talk about that at some point, aren't we? As treatment... Mesmer had Francisca swallow a quaff of iron shavings. Then he took magnets and moved them about her body. Francisca said she could feel a stream coursing through her body as Mesmer moved his magnets by hand across her. And, more importantly, when he had finished, Osterlin was cured. For a couple of hours her symptoms had returned by the end of the day. But let's not get bogged down in details. He cured her! Finally, at 40 years of age, Franz Mesmer had stumbled across something befitting his ambition. Somewhere in the next few months, he encountered what some might have taken as a hiccup. In his treatments, he tried performing the same basic gestures and movements on patients, but without the magnets and pharaohist potions. In modern science, we might call this a control group, and if we discovered, as Mesmer did, that those treated without magnets responded as well as those with them, we might wonder if we were doing something wrong. But Mesmer didn't know anything about double-blind experiments. The idea hadn't been invented yet, although we'll get there. So he wasn't alarmed by the outcome at all. To the contrary, when he found that he could achieve as much success just by working his naked hands over the flesh of the afflicted, he concluded that he was onto something even bigger than hell or even himself had initially imagined. The vital fluid, which Paracelsus had struggled to define beyond a vague idea and Newton had hypothesized in a shrugging, confounded footnote, Mesmer had figured it out and bested the brightest minds in history. A year later, when he was invited by the Munich Academy of Sciences to give his opinion on the medical exorcisms of Johann Joseph Gassner, Mesmer could state confidently the method of action, animal magnetism. All life was animated by a sort of watery spirit, as Paracelsus had claimed. But it wasn't liquid electricity, as Newton seemed to suggest, and as many leading thinkers of the time, Galvani, Volta, believed. Instead, the life stuff flowed through living bodies by means of attraction. Illness, both physical and psychological, was caused by either blockages in this flow or from a shortage of animal magnetism in the victim. But because animal magnetism was attractive, a person with a surfeit of it could manipulate a patient's flow to break up the blockages or lend some of their surplus juices to one who was coming up short. Gasner, Mesmer reckoned, had naturally high levels of animal magnetism, which allowed him to coincidentally heal the sick while he attempted, mistakenly, to exercise them. There were lots of people out there like Gasner. But there was no one like Mesmer. Mesmer considered himself to have extraordinary, superlative quantities of animal magnetism, making him potentially the most powerful healer in the world. What a happy coincidence! Still, just like with Gassner, it's hard to argue with results. And Mesmer's were striking. His Viennese practice soon gathered hundreds of success stories, mostly for treating nervous or psychiatric conditions. For years, Mesmer had been known for his wife's money, mansion, and gardens. Now, he had his own claim to fame. There's not much on the record to tell us what his procedure looked like at this point. We can hypothesize based on later descriptions, that it probably involved a lot of deep eye contact, sitting directly across from and in close proximity to his patient, laying on hands. But it's all guesswork. The only thing we know about for sure is the music. Mesmer was obsessed by new music, especially that of Mozart, whose friendship he courted. He was a fine cellist and a good pianist, but he had a much rarer musical talent, too.
0: Mobile
1: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. In 1761, Benjamin Franklin heard a woman play a small concert on crystal bowls, running her wet fingers across the rims like you might have done with a wine glass, and thought it was the most beautiful sound he'd ever heard. But it was difficult to sustain more than two or three notes at a time, difficult to sustain at all, in fact, You had to tune rigorously before every use, pouring water in and out of the glasses. Franklin thought that if he could design a specialized instrument, he could bring the magical hum reliably and complexly to the masses. Together with a London glassblower, he devised the glass harmonica, a big pile of concentric bowls laid out horizontally on a spinning spindle, with the bigger rims producing lower notes and the smaller making higher ones, You could play it almost like a piano, but with wet fingers. Ta-da! Easy-peasy magic music. In practice, learning was much harder. Even though the harmonica was a big hit, few people managed to play it proficiently. And according to no less an authority than Mozart, Mesmer was the only good player in Vienna. Whatever Mesmer was doing with his patients in Vienna, it almost certainly involved his glass harmonica. For one, he always maintained that its sonorous song helped the process. As importantly, we know that everyone who knew Mesmer at the time talked about how vain and egotistical he was about the instrument he played incessantly for any and all audiences he could find, barely even pretending the performances weren't for his own gratification. So we can be pretty sure that Mesmer was already working his twin loves of music and medicine together before Maria Teresia von Paradise came into the picture. When she was just three years old, Maria had gone blind. Why and how was a mystery. She hadn't had any injury or fever. Equally as difficult to answer was whether and how she might be cured, For most blind children in the 18th century, these questions might not have gone anywhere. But her father was court counselor to Empress Maria Theresa, and so had the sway to bring in every doctor, theorist, and popular whack job around. I almost said Maria was lucky, but that wouldn't be right at all. Medical science was still a wee, bitty baby, and the healing regimens recommended for Maria ran the gamut between uncomfortable and downright awful. Humoral medicine was at the height of mainstream science. It called for Maria to be bled with leeches and fed laxatives. Somebody had the bright idea to shave her head and cover it in plaster down past her eyes, which was done for a full two months. Then there was the cutting edge stuff. Leiden jars, an early and quite powerful version of what Benjamin Franklin would name electrical batteries, were all the rage at the time. So. Why not try shooting 20,000 or so odd volts directly into the poor girl's eyes? No luck? Well, let's try it a few dozen more times, just to be sure. Maria's sight didn't return, Kelseyprees, but her eyes did begin to bulge and convulse and roll uncontrollably around the back of her head. To distract her from all this ongoing yet avoidable suffering, Maria was given music lessons. Quickly, very quickly, She showed herself to be a prodigious pianist and singer. She was playing for the Empress and drawing a monthly pension at the age of 11. She had perfect pitch and an uncanny memory. At her height, she had 60 full concertos down by heart, including Piano Concerto Number 18 in B-flat major, which Mozart wrote specifically for her. Maria Teresia von Paradise was a star. She was picking up 200 florins a month from the Empress and playing concerts all around Vienna. With her fame and success, she was able to extract a promise from her father. No more doctors. No more cures. In 1776, Maria was a 16-year-old wunderkind. And Mesmer was a 42-year-old scientific phenom with strong ties to her musical world. We can't be sure of the sequence of events that brought them together. There's some reason to believe that he first discovered her and let slip through the grapevine that he believed he could cure her. But even if that's true, it was Maria who brought up the idea with her father, reneging on their deal of her own accord. She went to live with Franz and Anna on January 20th, 1777, seeking full-time, round-the-clock treatment. Less than a year later, her father snuck her out of the Mesmer household for a brief family vacation. She never returned, and Franz Mesmer's reputation in Vienna was left a total and complete shambles. Why? What happened in that eight months that so ruined him? Mesmer believed it was a conspiracy, that the medical community was jealous of his success and spread rumors and slanders about him to Maria's father. Further, he said her father was a greedy, craven man who was afraid that his daughter would lose her imperial pension if Mesmer succeeded in restoring her sight. This explanation seems unlikely. What's documented about Paradise's case is that Mesmer succeeded. Partly. Within a month, he reportedly had been able to largely reverse the damage done by the Leiden jars. Her eyes stopped seizing and bulging and rolling. A month or two after that, she regained some small amount of vision, which might seem like a miracle to you or me, but not to Maria. Mesmer's cure had given her just enough sight to torture her. She was painfully photosensitive. She had to wear a blindfold to go out in the sun. By candlelight, she experienced debilitating vertigo. She found faces and images disorienting, had trouble making out shapes and colors. She cried and fainted at random. Worst of all, she couldn't play piano. When she was blind, she played effortlessly. The toast of the town, the virtuoso for whom Mozart and Haydn wrote beautiful tributes. But with the so-called success of Mesmer, she found herself distracted by the blurred sight of her fingers on the keys. Her natural genius was flattened by awareness. These small, torturous glimpses of sight came and went. After a treatment, or even sometimes simply after being in Mesmer's presence, she could see. A day or less without him, and the darkness would mercifully resettle. Mesmer wouldn't give up, though. Nor would he let her. Is this what turned Vienna against him? Maybe. It's true that many physicians examined Maria in the time she lived with Mesmer, and many of them came away critical or skeptical of his work. If you were only going by what was written down, you'd have to conclude that it was Mesmer's medical treatment of Maria that spiked and sullied his name. Yet, there's some subtext about the whole affair, and it's a kind of subtext that would quietly haunt Mesmer's reputation wherever he went and whatever he did. Here was a 17-year-old blind girl, smitten with a charismatic 43-year-old doctor in a loveless marriage, a doctor obsessed by musical genius with one of the most famous and spectacular musicians in Vienna, with whom she lived, with whom she spent hours a day locked in a room alone while he, what? Sang for her? Whispered in her ear? Passed his bare hands across every part of her body? Another thing we know about Mesmer's animal magnetism was that he sought to bring about in his patience an animated almost delirious state of excitement. Patients would scream and wail, jump and writhe. Then, finally, they would relax, settle, moan, and release. He called this the crisis or the climax. I don't have any evidence of romance between Mesmer and Paradise, but that's the thing of it. Mesmer's story is full of these curious holes, these unspoken innuendos. His critics and even his fans feel like they're always just a breath away from indicting him. The rumors and complaints on the books are numerous, but they're always just a little short on weight. In 1778, Mesmer was drummed out of town. Because of professional jealousy? Because he only partially cured Maria? Because her father feared she'd be less valuable-sighted, even though he'd worked her whole life to fix her eyes? When he fled Vienna, he took everything he valued with him. Experimental devices, paintings, even the glass harmonica. Everything except for Anna Maria von Pasch, his wife. She stayed conspicuously behind in Vienna, where she died of breast cancer 12 years later. In the whole of the rest of her life, Mesmer never saw her.
0: All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: Where does an exiled man full of ambition and self-supposed brilliance go? Why, Paris, of course. Mesmer believed he had made the single most important discovery in history, a revelation that could shed mankind of all suffering and disease. And he strutted into Parisian high society with as much pride and pomp as he figured his greatness deserved he almost immediately began a new practice at the posh Hotel Bouillon. To practice medicine in Paris required a lot of bureaucratic tape, a license, examinations, resubmission of an oral doctoral thesis. Mesmer didn't bother with any of that. He just set up shop without any certification or permission. And even though there was a cloud of suspicion over him from the jump, Given that he'd just fled Vienna under a mysterious shroud of shame, Mesmer's confidence and charm completely outdid all the rules and law. Almost immediately, word spread among Paris's most fashionable and trendy sophisticates of a hip medical miracle residing at the Hotel Bullion. If you'd have been a blue blood in 1778, suffering from melancholy, or hysteria, or asthma, or baldness, or dropsy, or lesions, or migraines, or anything, literally anything, you might have found yourself there, in a gorgeous, comfortable, well-appointed room, sitting in front of a refined and handsome Franz Mesmer, who would have been decked from head to toe in deep purple velvet. He'd have sat facing you, his knees against yours, his smoky blue eyes staring deep into yours, the sounds of the harmonica drifting in from the corner. He'd have spoken to you in a resonant whisper, run his hands just barely against your skin until finally you were overcome and afterwards healed. Or something like healed, at least. Then, on the way out the door, he'd have sold you a bottle of magnetized water, or maybe a magnetized shirt, or a magnetized bed. Mesmer was franchising himself. If you'd have showed up a year later, you might have had more trouble getting all that personal attention. Part of your therapy may have taken place on a magnetized chair, or underneath a magnetized tree. Mesmer was a star, rolling in money, and probably women. But that wasn't enough, he wanted more. He wanted respect and recognition. He first went to the Royal Academy of Sciences, and they all but laughed in its face. Then, a step down in his opinion, the Royal Society of Medicine. No dice. Finally, he tried to get adoration from the Faculty of Medicine at the Sorbonne. They, too, rejected him and his quote-unquote discovery. Frustrated and incensed, he announced in 1781 that he planned to take his ball and go home. He told his patients he was going to close up shop and leave Paris unless he was given his due. One of those patients was the Duchess de Chalnay, who was dead set on keeping her relationship with her, ahem, doctor. She appealed to the next famous name in this tale, her friend, Marie Antoinette. The Queen came to Mesmer's aid with an offer. If he submitted to scientific scrutiny of his theory and the results came back positive, France would give him a lifetime annuity under the condition that he remain in Paris. Mesmer agreed. But a couple weeks later, in an act of cronyism worthy of my Chicago heritage, King Louis sent a representative to tell him they were foregoing the commission into his work and paying out the annuity as well as an annual sum to keep him around. See, Marie Antoinette had paid Mesmer a visit and partaken in his therapy, and she had come away. Draw your own innuendo. The first deal she cut had been a favor to a friend, but now this was a favor for the queen. Mesmer agreed to it, enthusiastically. By 1784, Franz Mesmer had it all. Not just riches, not just followers, but respect. Fine, the academies still turned up their noses, but he had Louis XVI on his side and Queen Marie Antoinette in his coterie. If you'd have shown up for treatment then, at the height of his power, things would have been different, more opulent, less personal, and even more automated than before. By then, Mesmer was a sensation with 200 or more patients every day. To take care of the load, Mesmer invented La Baquette, A huge tub filled with magnetized bottles, around which twenty patients could sit at once, with lengths of iron reaching out to their laps and horsehair ropes gently tucked about them. In the dark, with the whispers of the master and the eerie music of the glass harmonica in your ear, Mesmer would pace the circle, tickling his hands about the diaphragms of the assembled, until they reached the fabled crisis. Sometimes, the crisis would hit especially hard, and his patients would be thoroughly overthrown with healing ecstasy, at which point they'd be carried off to darkened side rooms for personal, individual, secret treatment with the man himself. Usually, if you'd believe it, these patients were women. Lots of them MARRIED WOMEN The suspicions and paranoia about just what went on in these private rooms is, again, not something put precisely to writing, but it is inferable. It's in the subtext of the words and actions of Mesmer's increasingly large body of critics, many of which were the important husbands of his married patients. And while Mesmer was a powerful figure, there were those more powerful than he. In particular, King Louis XVI, who, concerned about Mesmer's, ahem, influence on his wife, decided maybe that commission was a good idea after all. Louis asked four members of the Academy of Medicine to investigate animal magnetism and those four asked five more investigators from the Academy of Science to join in. There's this photo from 1927 that's often talked about as the most astounding collection of scientific minds ever assembled. In it, you can see Albert Einstein sitting next to Hendrik Lorentz, sitting next to Marie Curie, sitting next to Max Planck. Two rows behind Einstein is Erwin Schrödinger, who's two doors left of Wolfgang Pauli? who's next to Werner Heisenberg, who's behind Niels Bohr. And those are just highlights. 17 of the 29 people in the photo ended up winning Nobel Prizes. Marie Curie won two in two separate disciplines. It probably is the greatest mass of brain power ever assembled. But second place could go to Louis XVI's commission on animal magnetism. Let's go through the lineup in ascending order of auspiciousness. First off, you've got two physicians, Michel-Joseph Majot, the head physician at Hotel Dieu, one of the major hospitals in Paris, and Charles-Louis Balin, a professor of physiology, pathology, and pharmacology at the Academy. No slouches, for sure. Definitely bottom tier for this group, though. Next was Jean-Baptiste Leroy, The deputy director of the Royal Academy of Sciences at the time, Leroy was a master of machines and produced the definitive encyclopedia texts on clockmaking, telescopes, locks, and hundreds more instruments and devices. He, along with Benjamin Franklin, helped prove that electricity was a single phenomenon. He, along with Benjamin Franklin, helped invent the lightning rod. And he, all by himself, created the first electrometer for measuring the strength of electrical charges. Not bad, Jean Baptiste. Jean D'Arsay, professor of chemistry at the academy, was best known as the first Westerner to discover the process for creating porcelain. But he also created a fusible alloy for medical prostheses, figured out how to extract soda from marine salt, how to manufacture soap from oils and fats, and was the first person to ever melt a diamond. Oh, and also he invented Jello. And the last name in our mid-echelon investigators, jean Sylvain Ballet. Most of Ballet's legacy came after the Mesmer case, so we'll get to it in a bit. But at the time he was appointed to the commission, he had already charted the orbit of Halley's Comet and the four then-known moons of Jupiter. Okay. Now for the big guns, the final three. Joseph Ignace Guillotine was a young doctor and politician who, uh, how to put this delicately, transformed the French justice system? Guillotine didn't invent the murder machine that bears his name, but he was responsible for its adoption. His advocacy wasn't based on bloodthirst. Far from it. Guillotine actually opposed the death penalty. But seeing that there wasn't support for abolishing it, he decided that a mechanical, dependable system for delivering executions would be the next best thing. At the time, capital punishment was delivered to the poor by a variety of terrifying means. Drawing and quartering, burning at the stake, drowning. Meanwhile, the highborn got to be beheaded by axe or sword. To Guillotine, that didn't seem fair or just, so he proposed there be one simple, humane form of execution for everybody. He also believed, somehow, that if everyone were under the same threat, the people of France would eventually give up on the whole enterprise. I can't for the life of me understand that logic, and I think it's safe to say that if Guillotine's goal was fewer beheadings, his plan, uh, it somewhat backfired. But we'll get back to that, too. Penultimately, there's Antoine Laurent Lavoisier. What did Lavoisier do? But how's this first start? He discovered fire. Okay, sure, he, obviously he didn't discover fire, but he figured out what it was and how it worked. In the process, he helped discover oxygen and hydrogen. He created the first table of the elements and proved sulfur was one of them. Up until then, it was thought to be a compound. He helped develop the metric system He determined that diamonds and coal were made of the same thing and named that thing carbon. Oh, and while he was reducing diamonds to coal, he realized that they weighed the same and concluded that mass can be neither created or destroyed, only changed. Yeah, conservation of mass and energy, that's Lavoisier too. For all of this and more, Lavoisier is known, and pretty aptly I'd say, as the father of chemistry and one of the greatest scientists of all time. Who? Who? What name could round off this list better than Lavoisier, the greatest genius France produced for at least 100 years? Who could possibly be of higher estimation than the father of chemistry? Well, how about the father of modern demography? No? Well, what if that guy also discovered the Gulf Stream? And what if he also discovered refrigeration and that lightning was electricity and, along with Leroy, that electricity was a single phenomenon? What if he wrote the poor Richard's Almanac and helped to write the Declaration of Independence? What if he invented the odometer and the catheter and the stove and bifocals and the postal service and fire departments? And most importantly of all, what if he invented the glass harmonica? That's right. Heading up our investigation is none other than the man himself, Benjamin motherfucking Franklin. Oh my God, Mesmer, Lavoisier, and Ben Franklin. You are so boned. It seems like Mesmer probably knew it too. Mesmer and Franklin were acquainted because of the glass harmonica. Mesmer had at least once invited Franklin to listen to him play and examine his harmonica, but at dinner, he tried ceaselessly to convince Franklin and his guests of the value of animal magnetism. Franklin had walked away unimpressed and put off by his puffery, which might explain why Mesmer himself didn't participate in the trials around his very own theory. Instead, the job of defending and applying his techniques for the commission fell to his assistant, Charles Deslin. For him, Lavassier and Franklin constructed a number of experiments. First, they brought seven patients, as well as Deslin, to Franklin's house for a demonstration. The commission was unimpressed, and in Franklin's final report, he wrote that all but three of the patients felt nothing then, they brought in a young girl who was known to suffer from fits and seizures. It seems as though this experiment was designed almost as a gimme. The most consistent trait of these so-called mesmeric crises was convulsions, and the girl convulsed almost constantly. But Deslin's treatment didn't affect her one way or the other. He wasn't able to compel or cure her seizures. When one of the commissioners, he's not named in the report, came down with a migraine, they staged an impromptu experiment, bringing in Deslin to treat his headache before the group. When he failed to make a dent in the pain, the afflicted offered a simpler test. This particular migraine, in addition to being a severe headache, also made the patient's feet very cold. Could animal magnetism at least have some impact on that? Deslin placed his foot next to the unnamed commissioner and attempted to transfer some of his foot heat through to him. No joy. At this point, the group was decidedly, concretely dubious of the whole shebang. Franklin wrote, These facts permitted the commissioners to observe that magnetism had seemed to be worthless for those patients who submitted to it with a measure of incredulity. That the commissioners, even when those with jittery nerves deliberately focused their attention elsewhere, having been armed with philosophical... Hmm having been armed with philosophical doubt that ought to accompany every examination, did in no way feel the impressions felt by the three lower-class patients, and they must have suspected that these impressions, even supposing them all to be real, followed from an anticipated conviction and could have been an effect of the imagination. So they designed another experiment, this time to test their hypothesis that animal magnetism was totally imagined. They brought in one of Mesmer's following, a frequent patient who was said to be sensitive to magnetism. They then had their Mesmerist work his magic over different parts of her body, asking her to describe where and what effects she felt. Except first, they blindfolded her. Without being able to see where the practitioner was and what he was doing, the patient's descriptions of where she felt the magnetism became totally arbitrary. So, the commission motioned for the mesmerist to stop doing anything. But the woman still claimed she was being magnetized in various places. This was a monumental moment in history. In addition to modern chemistry and demography, the stove and bifocals, hydrogen and gelatin, the commission had just co-created a new invention. Maybe the most important invention of any of their lives. Blinding the single most powerful tool in medical science. With the result, Franklin wrote, It was natural to conclude that these sensations, true or false, were determined by the imagination. After repeating this experiment with several other subjects, they moved on to a few similar and similarly clever takes, They asked Deslin to magnetize an apricot tree in Franklin's orchard and brought a boy out to hug a random series of them for two minutes each. When he reached the fourth tree, he collapsed into Mesmeric crisis, but none of the trees the boy had been brought to had been magnetized. They brought forth one of Mesmer's coterie and had her taste from four glasses of water, one of which they told her he had magnetized. When she drank from the fourth, She fell into crisis, too, and was given a seat and a fresh glass of water to recover. But only the recovery water had been magnetized. Finally, they brought the woman from the first blind experiment back, but this time they told her it was just for an interview. One of the commissioners sat with her, asking her questions, while unbeknownst to her, Deslin was standing right beside, behind a paper door, mesmerizing her while the commission watched. She was never the wiser. The matter, the scientists concluded, was settled. Wrote Franklin, This agent, this fluid, does not exist. But as chimerical as it is, the idea of it is not new. Magnetism, therefore, is only an old error. This theory is being presented today with a more impressive apparatus, necessary in a more enlightened century, but it is not for that reason less false. False. Man seizes, abandons, and takes up again the error that gratifies him. There are errors which will be eternally dear to humanity. How many times has astrology not reappeared upon the Earth? Magnetism draws us to return to it. The desire has been to link it to the celestial influences so as to make it more captivating and attract men with the double hopes that touch them most, the hope of knowing their future and the hope of prolonging their days. Mesmer had discredited the exorcism of Johann Joseph Gassner by putting up his new theory. Nine years later, the Avengers of 18th century science returned the favor, discrediting animal magnetism by putting up a different new idea. The placebo effect. Charles Deslin, his protege, accepted the results, to a point. He acknowledged that the commission indicated there was no magnetic fluid, but insisted that the technique, even if it were powered only by imagination, still had value. He continued practicing mesmeric seances up until the moment he died in the middle of one, two years later. Father Gasner lived out the rest of his life in obscurity, the priest of a small congregation in the German hinterlands. Maria Teresia von Paradise never had any vision at all, ever again, after she left Mesmer's company. And she was all the better for it. She became one of the finest, most accomplished musicians in late 18th century Vienna. Which was a pretty big time and place to be that. In 1783, she set out for a tour of Europe. She played in Salzburg, Frankfurt, all through Germany and Switzerland. In March of 1784, at the same moment the commission was investigating her former, um, doctor, she arrived in Paris. She played 14 concerts there and was met with staggering acclaim. Then she went on to London, playing for the Prince of Wales and King George. On her way back to Vienna, she passed through Hamburg, Berlin, and Prague. She helped Valentin Hue form the first School for the Blind composed numerous operas, cantatas, and concertos, including this one, *Ciceline* in E-flat major. Later, she took to teaching, opening a school for music in Vienna in 1808, at which she taught until her death in 1824, at age 65. If whatever transpired between her and Mesmer had affected her, she never let on. She only mentions him once in her adult life, throwing him away as the doctor who unsuccessfully attempted a cure for a brief time. As for the other woman who got him into such trouble, Marie Antoinette, well, you know. In 1791, King Louis and Marie attempted to escape Versailles and the French Revolution. They were noticed and caught in less than a day. They were returned to the Tuileries, where the uneasy state of the monarchy wobbled until January 15, 1793, when King Louis was found guilty of undermining the new French Republic. He was executed six days later. Marie was imprisoned in a tower. In October, she was brought to trial for conspiracy to massacre the National Guard, sedition for naming her son king, for conducting orgies at Versailles, and for incest, a charge her son, Louis Charles, was forced into making personally. She was convicted of stealing from the treasury, conspiring against the state, and high treason. On October 16, 1793, she, too, was executed. Both, of course, by guillotine. As was Jean-Sylvain Bally, who sided with the Revolution and in 1789 was made the first mayor of Paris. He helped give French citizenship to Jews, helped manage a food shortage, secured munitions for the National Guard, and tried to maintain some civility and peace between the revolutionaries and the royals. But after Louis and Marie were caught in their escape, he imposed martial law to try to disperse a mob that was calling for a coup. A massacre broke out, Belly resigned and fled to the country. He was recognized and arrested in 1793 and, after refusing to testify against the Queen, sentenced to death. He, too, died by the guillotine on November 12, 1793. His fellow commissioner, Jean d'Arcet, chemist, inventor of gelatin and European porcelain, also sided with the early form of the Revolution and also made an eventual escape to the countryside, where he lived until after the Reign of Terror had ended. While there, he was sent the remains of various French luminaries, including Molière and La Fontaine, and asked to turn them into fine porcelain cups and bowls to celebrate the spirit of France. No word on whether he succeeded. He died in 1803 in Paris. Lavoisier and Franklin found great friendship with one another. They wrote frequently back and forth until Franklin's death, four years later after the commission, in 1790. He was 84. Lavoisier, too, was eventually pushed out of Paris. The revolution forced him from his post at the Gunpowder Commission and banned all the societies of learning, including the Academy, in August of 1793. Three months later, he was arrested, charged with defrauding the state and adulterating tobacco with water before selling it. Lavoisier soon realized that the court wasn't interested in getting at the truth of the matter, so he pleaded with the judge to be saved for the sake of his still ongoing work in science and chemistry. The judge, it is said, replied, The Republic has no need of scientists or chemists, and condemned him to death, once more, by the guillotine. The Italian mathematician and astronomer Joseph-Louis Lagrange reacted, saying, It took them only an instant to cut off that head, but France may not produce another like it in a century. And guillotine? Maybe you've heard that he himself was laid low by the device which bears his name, but that is as false as the idea that he invented it. It was another guillotine, a doctor in Lyon, who was executed. Joseph lived until 1814, where he died at home in Paris his family petitioned the French government to rename the instrument, and when it refused, they instead changed theirs. In that sense, Guillotine was the last of his line, unless you count the thousands of deaths that carry it on. His other inventions, which he shared with his fellow commissioners, those of the single-blind experiment and the placebo effect, amazingly disappeared. Neither were rediscovered until... Get this, 1954, when a placebo-controlled, blinded study on headache medicine was finally devised, only the second in history, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. As for Mesmer, embarrassed and disgraced, he fled Paris without so much as a forwarding address. He wandered around Europe for years. He had money galore, but there was nowhere he could take it where he wasn't seen as a charlatan. In 1793, he returned to Vienna and was promptly deported. You could call it luck that he was booed out of France when he was. Between his money, his science, and his association with the royals, he'd almost certainly have added his head to the baskets. Instead, he reached the very old age of 80, dying of a stroke in 1815 in the small German town of Mearsburg, an obscure and provincial aristocrat unknown and uncelebrated. You could spin that as a happy ending if you forget about his ambition. For his part, Franz Mesmer never did. That's what happened to Mesmer. But what happened to Mesmerism? Whew. The answer to that is... Well, tell you what. Meet me here next Tuesday, and we'll talk about it. Next week's episode the idea that broke America. Special thanks to everyone who liked us on Facebook, followed us on Twitter, rated and reviewed the show on their apps of choice. If you haven't yet done so, please go join them. Thanks to Lee Rosevere and Blue Dot Sessions and Anime is Trash for music this week. And most especially of all, thank you to Carlo Garcia, who contributed to our Kickstarter at the Constantine level, and who writes, Does anyone miss Shade Murray? I feel like no one really wants to say anything, but deep down everyone does. I still see Shade Murray every month or so, so I don't know what you're talking about. Until next time, from the home of Northwestern University, where researchers first identified the area of the brain responsible for the placebo response, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. One more thing, actually. At the end of Franklin's report, he waxed a bit poetic, and I can't possibly skip quoting him. Perhaps, he wrote, the history of the errors of mankind, all things considered, is more valuable and interesting than that of their discoveries. Truth is uniform and narrow. It constantly exists and does not seem to require so much an active energy as a passive aptitude of soul in order to encounter it. But error is endlessly diversified. It has no reality, but is the pure and simple creation of the mind that invents it. In this field, the soul has room enough to expand herself, to display all her boundless faculties and all her beautiful and interesting extravagancies and absurdities. Couldn't agree more, Ben.